so I had this personal experience of pain, which really, I think, changed how I saw you know, patients. That's a situation that so many of us find ourselves. And think about how many people write, how many physicians write after they've fallen sick. That personal experience, I think, helps them cross over into what it's like to be a patient in a way that the absence doesn't. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this episode is, um, is, is, a, is a neat one for me uh, because the guest on today's show, him and I go back quite some years. Um, so I have with me um, Heather, um, who I've known for many years um, as starting back to his residency days at uh, the B.I. Deaconess. And this was before he uh, ventured uh, to Duke for his cardiology fellowship, only to return back to Boston um, as a cardiologist um, at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And his trajectory has been phenomenal. Um, he's the one name which uh, comes to my mind when I think of a cardiologist author, uh, you know, having authored some seminal books on on pain, uh, on pain management and, and the epidemic of, of, of pain in, in the U.S. Um, and um, it's it's gone on, on the, his books have gone on to be translated into multiple languages and being read in, in different countries. Um, which you know tells you the caliber of his work. Um, he's also published you know seminal work um, in heart failure and and chronic diseases in you know all the top line journals, you know JAMA, New England Journal, Lancet, what have you. Um, and his new role um, is um, is quite the honor actually. He's now uh, a senior advisor for chronic disease management to the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner, uh, Dr. Caleb. So. If that introduction is not enough, Heather, welcome on the show, and thank you so much for doing this for us. Uh, thank you, Ankur. It's a real pleasure and honor uh, to be here, and uh, both in my capacity as as a guest, but also as a, as a friend. Yes, no, I, I think um, uh, you know your um, blooming career is um, a, a good topic for discussion for our listenership. You know, not only cardiologists at large, um, you know. Uh, across the globe, actually, quite frankly, and uh, but also, you know, trainees and medical students and residents and fellows and early career faculty. Um, so let me begin by asking you, um, what led you to a career in medicine, Heather? I don't think I've ever discussed this with you before, um, but I'm going to use this platform to ask you this question. You know, I, I think if there's one thing that has been constant uh, in my life is um, uh, is that I've always been uh, interested in a lot of different things all at the same time, which is, you know, sometimes that's good, but, you know, also it isn't. And that's kind of where I was when I was in high school. Uh, I, uh, believe it or not, I had applied to three uh, colleges. One was a dental school because my mom was a dentist. The other was an engineering school, which is close by, and the third was medical school. And 
I uh, then had to decide where I was going to go. And the reason I, I picked medicine was um, was mostly because of the the, the, the medical school uh, that I went to, which is Arakhan University Medical College in Karachi. It is, you know, I would say, um, you know, one of the one of the really special uh, places to receive an education um, in Pakistan, but also in that part of the world. Uh, so, so, so really, you know, I must say that, you know, when I, when I went to medical school, there were a lot of people there who had, you know, who had really sort of rich stories and reasons for why they were there. Uh, they'd had some experiences, uh, in their personal life or they had some intellectual curiosity. Um, but I went in without really having a very, very clear sense of what, why I wanted to be a physician, um. Uh, but but I'm I'm very glad that I did, um, and that and and in part I had to sort of create that reason over time. Uh, I had I had to really sort of find my way. Uh, you know when I was sort of already deep uh, in uh, deep and you know pretty far along this this pathway. Uh, but I think that's what the beauty of medicine is that that, that there is no one path. That um, there's so much that we can do and experience within this profession. Um, that especially for I think people who don't have a clear sort of fixed sense of who they want to be or who they are, or what they want to do. I think medicine just offers opportunities that few other careers do. Um, yes, no, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, I mean, medicine at large, but even within our own subspecialty or, you know, subspecialty within medicine, which is cardiology, um, you know, there is a breadth of, um, you know, tasks or pathways you can take, um, you know, developing a career, um, which actually leads me to my next question is when did the bug of writing get to you, Heather? Well, well, that bug preceded my uh, going to medical school. Uh, you know, ever since I was, I was young, I uh, gravitated towards books and I gravitated towards uh, telling stories. I, um, yeah, you know, it, it, I even when I was younger, I remember I used to draw comic books uh, for myself, um, and um, and then I started writing stories. There was this uh, there was this magazine uh, when you know that many people who are from Pakistan, which is where I'm from, uh, or had had read when they were kids, and it was called Us Magazine. And so I started writing stories for them. They were all fiction. Um, and just, just having, you know, seeing my name, you know, in print and, and being able to write those stories, uh, was really just a phenomenal experience for me. Uh, I was, you know, supported by my, my parents, especially my, my, my dad, uh, in that, in that endeavor. And I think that the one thing that I did that I feel like a lot of people, um, don't is that I continued that even after I joined medical school, you know, you've probably seen this yourself and, you know, you're obviously a writer and uh, as well, but you, you get these kids who join medical school and they have this, these rich experiences and these, these amazing talents. Um, and then, but as soon as they join medical school for, you know, one reason or another, uh, they don't pursue them uh, in a, in a sort of meaningful way. Uh, and, and that was, that was really sort of the main difference. Uh, I think between you know what I did and what others didn't, uh, or at least many others didn't, was that I 
know, persistent with writing and I kept writing and I didn't really have an audience. Um, I would write, you know, stories, you know, pretty much almost exclusively for myself or a couple of other friends who were generous with their time and would read what I'd written. Uh, but most of my friends wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, most of the writing that I uh, that I did in medical school uh, went unpublished. Uh, and so it really just stayed in my computer um, or in, you know, tattered uh, copies, photocopies sitting in my dorm room. Uh, but, but I, you know, I did what I could and I just kept, I just loved, uh, the, the process. Uh, I mean, I must say that I was writing mostly fiction, which is very, very different from what I'm writing nowadays, which is mostly nonfiction. Uh, but I, I just kept doing it. And, and, and for me, uh, the, the big difference or the big change came actually pretty late, which was, uh, during residency. And, so, you know, one of the things that writing was doing was even though it gave me a lot of joy and it gave me, a, um, it, 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 it allowed me to sort of inhabit this, this, uh, this, this world, that, which is rich and, and, and colorful and, and fantastical. It, it almost created a schism between what I love doing, which is writing and what I was actually doing, which was being training as a, a physician. Uh, and part of that was because my writing had nothing to do with medicine, um, that that they that may have been in part because I just didn't never felt like I understood uh, medicine uh, to the extent that I could actually have something meaningful to say, uh, and it took a long time for me to get to a point where I felt like I was seeing things or or was able to describe things in a way that really felt original. That didn't feel feel tired. Uh, that didn't didn't feel like it was. Um, uh, you know, stale in any way. Uh, but it took a long time for me to get there. And when I did, uh, which was in my second year of residency, uh, when I was at the BI, I finally started to write about, you know, my experiences as a physician, as a physician in training at the bedside. Uh, that really turned, uh, I think, my career and it brought these two worlds together um, in a way that that really, I think, uh, helped both. It helped me as a physician. Uh, it helped me become much more observant. Uh, I think it made me a better communicator. It made me more present in the moment. Uh, it made me more empathic. Uh, and I think it also helped me as a writer because now I was conveying experiences that were that I was such a sort of close witness to that that I uh, that, and and that uh, there were people who were interested in 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 being uh, sort of being in that place where I was, and they were interested in uh, that perspective. So, I mean, that's a sort of broad overview uh, of uh, my, my writing, and, and you know, we can we can talk more about um, others. But that that's how it changed, and it was that moment when finally those two worlds came together that I really felt like a whole person. Uh, because I did feel like n now these two things that I was extremely, there's this one thing I was passionate about this other, but this other piece that I was you know, technically getting more adept at when they came together, it, it, it really sort of brought, um, uh, you know, it, it brought things full circle in a really meaningful way for me. Yeah, no, um, it's, um, very introspective, you know, the way you answered the question and, um, I'm, I, I don't think I've, I've come across um, 
fiction work from you, although I'd be very interested because you, you write very eloquently. Uh, and, you know, I think the, your nonfiction work is the one that you've published. And now I, I believe two books, is that right? Um, Heather? Yep. Yep. So, so, so three books. So my first book was, uh, was Modern Death, How Medicine Changed the End of Life. And that was really, that I started writing that at the, in my third year of residency. Uh, and, uh, it was published when I was, uh, I believe a second year, second year fellow. And then I wrote a book about heart disease, which was, I wrote, you know, at the end of my cardiology fellowship. And then most recently, I mentioned uh, I wrote the book that you mentioned, uh, uh, "The Song of Our Scars: The Untold Story of Pain," uh, which is about chronic pain. Which I wrote, um, actually wrote it right when the pandemic started. Um, and so, so, so these, so these are these are three nonfiction books that I've, I've written. So yes, Heather. I mean, you know, clearly you are a prolific writer. I mean, you know, both in in terms of scientific publishing as well as authoring books uh, and. For someone, uh, and I think I've asked this to other physician authors who've been on the podcast as well, um, is, um, you know, prolific writing is is one aspect, you know, but to have the discipline, uh, you know, in the middle of a career as a, as a clinician, um, to, to then, you know, spring up with three books, I mean, you know, residency and fellowship is, is, is a particularly grueling time in in a physician's life, you know, when you don't have um, control over your schedule, how how, di- how did you come up with the ergonomics of authoring two fantastic books? I mean, you know, both Modern Death and the second one on heart disease. How did you do that amidst residency and fellowship? Let me ask you that question first, you know, and then I'm going to delve into some of the more aspects of writing. Right. I mean, I think that you have to be, I mean, what I will say is that when, when, when anyone thinks about writing a book, and this, you know, even when I thought about writing a book uh, for the first time, it feels like an impossible task. Um, it feels like, and uh, it, it really just feels outside of the, you know, because all of us write to some extent, right? Whether we're writing HPIs or progress notes or writing, you know, research papers, emails, you know, on social media, et cetera. So we're all write, writing, but just the sheer amount of, stuff that goes into writing a book just feels almost um, an unimaginable task. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, you know, there, but, but, but you have these moments and I think everyone, and, and you have these stories and you have uh, where it just feels like, and you know, where you have so much to say and you, uh, that, that it doesn't, um, that, that if anything, keeping it inside feels more work. Um, than than actually writing it, um, but but then as far as the sort of practical aspects of you know what it takes uh, to write a book as a busy professional, which you know all of us uh, most of you know I'm sure most of our listeners are. Uh, first of all, uh, it has to be you have to really love the process. You know, if you don't like to write, if you if the process itself is painful. Uh, it's hard to for me to recommend it uh, to anyone. Uh, I mean, some people who are amazing writers actually hate the process of writing, and I, I don't know how they do it. But for me, that that love has to be there. Um, the second thing is just being uh, just being disciplined and just making sure that you know, are you going to take out some amount of time every day, whether you're tired, whether you're sleepy, whether you're post call, 
um, to focus on it. And, and it may not be writing, it may just be reading or research. I mean, most of my books uh, are, you know, I was, I, you know, I have to say that, you know, 80% of the work is basically research because, you know, as a, as a physician and scientist, I, 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 it's very hard for me to approach the blank page without feeling like I have confidence about or knowledge about what I'm going to say. And so, so that type of discipline is extremely important. Um, and the system, uh, and, and then the third thing, um, I would say is really it's it's like any form of it's like exercise. Is you you can't just you know if you're going to run a marathon you can't just decide to do it one day. You have to you know to train for it um, or a long period of time uh, to get to a point where you can you know a you 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 are ready and you're prepared to take that journey on. Um, and then and then you know maybe lastly I think I I think having a supportive environment. Um, and for me, that was, you know, my wife who, you know, um, also believed in uh, this and who believed that uh, this was a worthwhile endeavor. Um, so, so I think those are, those are some of the key ingredients, but you know, what I will say is that it, it, it does seem harder than it is uh, the, the writing part um, in, in part because uh, the, the types of things that we do in our lives are are there, there are so many things that are I would say in, in so many ways so much harder than writing a book. I mean, I you know I'm a foreign medical graduate. You know, give I remember give you know preparing for step one and and, and feeling like that was the most important day of my life and that that would determine you know how my life would proceed from that moment. And so the amount of work I put in uh, for that, as I'm sure so many others did uh, have, or people who, you know, you know, just the fact of going through residency and fellowship or writing a grant or writing a difficult paper. I mean, we do a lot of really, really difficult things um, just as part of our routine work. Uh, so I don't, so, uh, so I don't, Think that the, the 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 book is something that is you know especially intimidating or should be intimidating um, as long as you have the inspiration as long as you have the love as long as you have the reason um, I think that's really to me is the more important thing. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think you have to have the well. First off, I think you said something which resonated with me extremely well, and that was that when it becomes harder for you to keep it in and easier for you to put it on paper, um, you know, you know that you have to write. Um, and then, you know, obviously um, that has to then be combined with the discipline of, you know, carving out time, a dedicated amount of time, whether it's on a weekly basis or on a daily basis to put something on paper. I mean, you know, the only way you're going to write a book is if you actually write, right. And, um, uh, then, um, you know, obviously, uh, having content expertise requires, uh, you know, a lot of preparation and reading. Um, so, Heather, um, this—I uh, know this is—I shouldn't even ask this question, but I think that the fact that it, it it occurred to my mind, I'll probably go ahead and ask this question: Is uh, um, do you have any particular favorite of the three that you've written so far? Uh, <laughs> um, and if you do, why? Well. Um... I okay. That's that. I, so I would say, uh, well, first of all, I it, it's the 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 two books that I am more proud of are 
uh, or basically uh, my most recent book, uh, which is The Song of Our Scars, which is on, on chronic pain, or my first book, which is Modern Death. Um, you know, part of me, and, and the reason I think that, especially the last book that was really, um, to me, was... Uh, was probably my best written book and 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 part of that I think came down to um just you know how I approached the book uh and and I I you know I I you know this was my third book I'd already written two books and I really felt that there was something missing and I needed to um um and that I really uh you know, I really needed uh, a, 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 a change in a, a, an approach. And, you know, one of the things um, Kruger, nowadays is that, you know, if anyone wants to learn about chronic pain or if they want to read a great article on chronic pain, for example, let's just use that as, a, as an example, um, they can go online right now and chances are they are going to find a really, really great article or a feature or long form essay on chronic pain completely for free uh, that they can read whenever they want uh, and uh, that they can take some takeaway, take home points from. So, so the real question is, what are you going to write that is going to a, make people you know, spend money to buy a book that's going to take a long time to read? I mean, we've talked about the time it takes to write a book, but you know, the reader is also investing their time in reading uh, a book that can take, you know, that can take a long time. Uh, so the question is, what what is it that you have to say that is going to make someone, you know, go ahead, buy a book and read it? And, and, uh, and, I, and, and, and what is the central driving idea that shapes the entire book that is going to make that make that happen, um, especially at a time when there is no shortage of great ideas, great writing, um, really accessible to most people who have and uh, have uh, you know uh, who have either a library subscription or have access to the internet. And so I and so I did feel that this that that I had a different approach to this book. I think what was also interesting about this book was that, at least from a scientific perspective, it was different from anything I'd done before. So if anything, I felt even more compelled to be even more prepared um, and uh, uh, than than I than I you know had had been in the past. Uh, and I so 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 in some ways, I, I do feel that that uh, that this that the most recent book, uh, is probably the book that I am I am proudest of as far as um, the entire package is concerned. Uh, but but I mean, there's a cliche amongst writers that you know whenever you ask them, you know, what's your favorite book, it's always the last one. But but in this case, I actually I actually feel that um, at least me um, that 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 it is it's probably the hardest book I had to write. In the the first book. You know, modern death. I was very. I was was different because I was. I was. It had its own set of challenges. So the belief it needed to just write a book and 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 feel that someone's going to be interested enough to publish it. Um, it takes a certain degree of delusion um, that that you know I can't afford to have anymore. Um, but 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 that added so that 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 journey itself was fun as well. Uh, and it's one that I think shapes uh, how I think and what I do and uh, who I am to this day.
Yeah, no, fascinating. Heather, uh, let me ask you this question. Um, you know, you wrote about modern death and, you know, as cardiologists, you know, certainly chronic coronary disease or cardiovascular disorders are, you know, like the top killer in the country for, uh, you know, chronic, uh, you know, among amongst chronic illnesses. Um, it sort of is intuitive that you would write about modern death, you know, how, and, you know, I think if any specialty we're at the forefront of modernizing deaths, you know, with all the innovation and devices and drugs that we come up with, you know, every year. Um, so I think it, it to an outside person like myself who has watched your career blossom, it would feel intuitive that you would write on modern deaths. How did you decide to write on chronic pain? When did you interface with, uh, you know, taking care of patients with chronic pain, or that was something that the pandemic brought about? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the reason I wrote about chronic pain um, was uh, was actually because uh, I, uh, and I would say that that was the probably the most important reason why I wrote the book was because I actually had lived with chronic pain for a long period of time. And, you know, it all started after I had this really bad back injury when I was in medical school. Um, you know, I was, you know, in medical school, I was just your typical jock and a medical student who, you know, spends most of his day in the gym or, you know, playing sports, et cetera, uh, extremely careless, feels like they're invincible. Uh, and it was, you know, just when the one random day that, you know, I was lifting weights uh, and uh, I was actually doing a, I was doing a bench press and uh, I, you know, basically heard this loud click in my back, uh, my whole body essentially went limp. I was trapped under these weights that I had basically no ability to get off my body. Uh, there, there were folks around uh, the gym who noticed that I was in trouble. They they helped lift the weights off. They rolled me to the emergency room, and um, I you know got an injection of Toradol, uh, and I was told that. You know, this pain is going to go away. And I believe that because that is what I think my experience with pain had been that, you know, you hurt yourself, pain is pretty bad at the start, and then over time it goes away. Um, but the only difference was that this pain didn't go away and it didn't, didn't go away for years. And, and it really affected me in a very, very deep way. Um, I could essentially not even function as a medical student. I could not be in the OR. I couldn't stand. I couldn't sit and I couldn't lean. Um, and I, I lost a lot of weight. I couldn't exercise. I could barely leave my room, lost pretty much most of my friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, just climbing a set of stairs was the most intimidating thing that I could face. I mean, and, and, and over time, and and you know, I uh, over time, and with a lot of luck, and with a lot of support, and with a lot of physical therapy, and and all, you know, it took a it took a real village. It took me a few years to get better. Um, but even even to this day, even when I was in the cath lab, I loved being in the lab. You know, when I would come back from the lab, my heart would be would be happy, it would be racing, it would be excited, but my my body would, my back would be saying, "Hold up." Um, and um, and then uh, so I had this personal experience of pain, which really I think changed how I saw uh, you know patients because you know back pain is one of those I looked because I looked completely fine. If you saw me back then, you'd feel like I'm just a normal person. You'd have no idea what was going on inside me. And I think that that's the 
that's a that's a situation that so many of us find ourselves in. And that's one of the reasons I think it's I think it's sad, but it's true. But think about how many people write, how many physicians write after they've fallen sick, right? Because that that personal experience, I think, helps them cross over into what it's like to be a patient in a way that the absence doesn't. Um but then, you know, fast forward, I became a resident and and then my residency was was like so many others was dominated by negotiating opioid prescriptions for patients with chronic pain. Uh, and this was, you know, at the time when opioid prescription was um, at its peak in the United States, we hadn't really uh, coined a term for the opioid epidemic. We didn't even realize what the effects of what we were doing in medicine was having. Uh, and then the last thing is that the size of chronic pain was incredibly interesting, but it had very little bearing on how we actually treated it. So if all these things came together, this 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 personal experience of pain, which I think was very essential because I think most people who have pain, they believe that you know only someone who has or lives with pain can understand what it means to be or feel what they feel. And then that that experience of being a physician who is always, you know, up against all these challenges around treating chronic pain with tools that we know are extremely bad, i.e., opioids. Um, I think those, you know, those those experiences. Uh, I, I really felt that I was in a unique position to be able to talk about this really common, vexing, uh, but incredibly interesting phenomenon that affects, you know, one in five people, not just in this country but also around the world. Um, so that's those. So when those things kind of came together. Uh, I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had previous ideas about what I wanted to write about, but this one, you know, it just feels, it just felt like everything was there. Um, so, so that's, that's really how I came to write about it. You know, thank you for, uh, taking us through your own, uh, personal journey. Uh, it's, uh, inspiring, uh, to learn, uh, the genesis, uh, and the, the inspiration behind the book, um, which, uh, you know, I think if you look at just your literary work, you know, uh, across the spectrum of what you've written, you know, from modern death to heart disease to chronic pain actually forms a great foundation for you to, to have a title, which you have now, which is a senior advisor uh, for chronic disease management to the FDA commissioner. Tell us more about this, Heather. How did you stumble upon a beautiful title like this? Uh, well, it was all, uh, you know, like so many things, uh, it was uh, it was it was at least partly uh, serendipitous. Uh, so, you know, a lot of my writing ended up uh, impacting or affecting my research. Uh, you know, when I wrote about uh, end of life care, that informed my research, which was really focused on uh, you know how can we do better for patients with heart disease at the end of life. Um, and and within cardiovascular disease, you know, as I mentioned before, I, you know, I was always someone who was interested in a lot of different things. You know, so I was interested in palliative care. I was interested in geriatrics. I was interested in you know, healthy, uh, you know, the, the the economic aspects of medicine, decision making, financial burden. Et cetera. The, the list was long. And when I would go to, you know, one of my one of my mentors, um, 
uh, you know, uh, they would they would say, you know, what are you doing? You need to focus. You need to sort of narrow things down. And 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 I think that that for, I think for most people, and I think that is the right, that is the exact, absolute right thing to do, um, to really develop deep knowledge or or, or really deep expertise. Uh, in a specific area within uh, within medicine, within one's chosen field, and and you know, I think for me that was just something. For some reason, you know, I I'm just one of those people. You know, we just can never say no, right? Um, and um, and and so I was so I was very so I had all these diffuse interests uh, in uh, in medicine and in in uh, you know primarily around chronic conditions. Uh, and then what had happened was that one of my uh, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Rob Califf, uh, who was previously you know, commissioner of the FDA before I knew him, uh, was asked uh, was nominated by uh, by President Biden uh, to resume that position um, at a really a very challenging time um, in uh, in medicine where there's a lot of distrust uh, about uh, what we do and who we are. Uh, there are a lot of challenges that we face, you know, coming out of a pandemic, um, and then now with this rising tide of chronic disease, uh, that really was one of the main reasons why America or Americans did so poorly during the pandemic was because we have so many chronic conditions that put us at high risk for having poor outcomes. Um, so this position was was created by, you know, Dr. Califf. There, there are two positions. Uh, one was focused on mental health and substance abuse and behavioral health, and the other was on chronic disease. Um, and this just felt like a, a great fit. I mean, for, for anyone out there who's had the chance to work with Dr. Califf uh, in any capacity, I mean, they will tell you that just, I mean, I would have taken this position, um, even if it were, regardless of what the underlying uh, topic was, because just the uh, just the opportunity to work closely with Dr. Kaleif, learn from him, see how he leads, um, in in his own sort of very unique uh, way, uh, would have been enough uh, for me. Um, but uh, I think the fact that it pertained to chronic disease and really allowed me to work at, you know, I would say. Uh, you know, a leading public health agency that, you know, has a mandate across drugs, devices, digital health, AI, nutrition, tobacco. Um, it was hard to, uh, it was hard, hard to pass, uh, hard to pass on. Uh, so that's really kind of, you know, that's why it was interesting to me because the mandate was very broad, which, you know, in, in academia, that was something I was struggling with, but here it could potentially actually be a strength because it was so broad and it could allow someone like myself who has all these various interests to actually use them in a meaningful way that supports the mission of the organization. Um, but then also I think the uh, the opportunity to work with uh, Dr. Califf, but also all the unbelievable, amazing uh, people at the agency, uh, both sort of in the office of the commissioner and leadership, but also in the various centers who have really dedicated their lives to uh, protecting the public's health, uh, protected uh, who have uh, dedicated their lives to science, um, and just just the ability to learn from them and see how seriously they take their work has been this um, has been pretty amazing. So I, I've worked full time at FDA, um, but I still um, uh, I've continued my clinical work um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital.
you know, you know, fantastic. I think um, I resonate with um, the problem of diffuse interests as well, <laughs> as you may know. Um, um, and you know, I think um, what will that lead to? I don't know yet. Um, you know, I'm certainly of the uh, belief and opinion that you know the the better days are still ahead of me. Um, Heather, uh, you know, final few minutes on the podcast. I do want. Um, I, I think I mean you've you've touched briefly on this as to what you do. Um, as your, you know, in your role, uh, you know, encompassing uh, various um, disease states, but also digital health and augmented intelligence and and nutrition and tobacco. Uh, I want um, uh, two questions here, two part question. One is, what does a, uh, an average week or an average day look like in your um, in your life uh, at the FDA? And I think this is going to be fascinating for the listenership, you know, because. Many of them would aspire to look up to a career like yours. Uh, and the the second part of this question is, uh, it's a focused question, um, is a question I also asked Dr. Fuster uh, in our Centennial episode, and that is, um, how is the FDA looking at AI? Um, what are some of the conversations you've had around AI? I know, I know this this probably will probably be an episode in and of itself, but you know, in a nutshell, if you can maybe describe succinctly what those conversations have been, I think that'll be fascinating to hear hear that from you. As a day in the life of, I, I think, of uh, of someone who works at the FDA, and I, I'll just say it, it's it's a, it's a great place to work. Um, of all the governmental agencies, the you know, FDA is only behind NASA in regards to how highly people rate uh, their quality of life, uh, which is why so many people work here for such a long time. Uh, but but everyone's uh, you know experience from an, on a day to day basis might be different depending on what they do. You know, my work is um, very uh, I, and I work from home and I'm still based in Boston for the most part. Uh, so but my work is r- really focused around specific problems or sort of areas that I'm focused on that are felt to be areas of need. And then really it's a matter of me going to the experts and saying you know how can I help you. And what were the gaps you see? Um, and and so you know, essentially working with the staff to to sort of look at problems and then seeing you know how can I help them achieve their their sort of mission uh, within as it pertains to uh, to chronic disease. I mean, with regards to AI, I mean, I will say that the SDA has been, um, and this is you know a lot of this is uh, this is all public information, so nothing I'm sharing here is. Um, isn't out there, but clearly, I think uh, the agency uh, sees AI as a you know potentially transformative uh, technology, and uh, uh, both for uh, for many different applications to improve patient care, to improve to improve uh, physicians' quality of life, uh, to you know help potentially with you know drug discovery. Um, and, and and also potentially with uh, improvements in clinical trials. Uh, our, our our north star is always, uh, you know, is is just having high quality data to guide uh, decisions uh, around uh, around these technologies. Uh, but but if you if you see, I mean, we uh, FD has you know ex- uh, has approved. Um, Hundreds of AI-enabled uh, uh, medical devices, uh, and and the second most uh, common indication 
after radiology is actually cardiology. So cardiology, uh, so AI, so you know, if you look at AI uh, technologies, cardiology is second right behind uh, radiology and how uh, many sort of devices have received FDA approval. And some of the things that FDA has done uh, show just how important they think the space is. Uh, so there was a draft guidance, for example, that was published that speaks to one of the challenges that that AI presents for from a regulatory perspective. Uh, you know, unlike many products. So, for example, if you have a drug that you do a phase three trial on and the, the data looks good and you present to FDA, the drug that patients get versus the drug that was approved is the same. You know, uh, you know. For example, Entresto is no different today than it was when it was presented uh, in front of the FDA or when it was tested in Paradigm. Uh, but AI can continue to evolve. Sometimes, or sometimes it gets better, but sometimes its performance can can get worse over time. Uh, but FDA has, you know, for example, you know, developed a draft guidances. Uh, after you know, really listening to all the stakeholders about how to incorporate or how to develop prospectively plans for uh, managing those changes without having the manufacturer then having to come back to the agency for every single change that is made. Uh, so, so I, I would say that I think, and you know, I think Dr. Caliph is, I uh, and and others, including uh, Troy Tasba, Matt Diamond. These are you know our leaders in digital health. Uh, they have been at the forefront of really taking this challenge on and making sure that our processes continue to evolve with the technology. Uh, we see a lot of. Uh, I think it's. I think it's fairly uh, clear that this is a this is a potentially revolutionary revolutionary technology, and we've already started to see applications of it in clinical use. Um, in these, in you know, these applications are only going to increase, uh, and. Uh, and 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 if you look at both the volume of approvals, but also, um, you know, in other facets, uh, I think our our goal is to sort of is to keep up and make sure that the products that do make it to market are safe uh, and effective, um, and that the regulatory pathways are 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 tuned to be up to that challenge. Yeah, no, fascinating, Heather. Um, this has been it's been great to connect with you. Um, after some time and you know it's been just fascinating to see your career and your journey um and the multitude of roles that you've you've undertaken and you know the books that you've written um it's just um you know very heartening to see um what all you've accomplished um any closing remarks for parallax and for the listenership well i mean uh being a cardiologist is still one of the, you know, probably the most fun thing I get to do. Uh, if anything, I think in my current role, you know, when I'm on service, it's even more exciting because, um, uh, you know, I'm not doing it as often as I was. And I can certainly see myself transitioning to a more clinically every role in the future. Uh, but this is really the beauty of our field uh, is that, you know, like you mentioned, um, there is so many uh ways that there are so many different ways to be a cardiologist uh and and there's so many different paths that people can take uh i mean just look at the the the, the types of people you've spoken to in the past and will continue to speak to in the future and also you know your own uh career as a structural cardiologist who has all these interests uh, i just think that there's very few uh 
there there are very few things that 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 offer the sort of uh, flexibility and room for innovation that our field uh, has. So, so that's that's that that would be my my closing uh, closing remark. Uh, is that you know despite all of these things, I think when you are at the patient's bedside and you are able to help, um, that there's just nothing like it. Excellent. Yeah, this was a great interview. Thanks, Heather. Um, and uh, thanks to everyone uh, for listening and tuning in. Um, like always, you know, do leave your um, comments. And if you have any questions, you know, feel free to, to email them to us. You know, the email addresses um, in the show notes. Uh, we'll make certain that uh, um, all of Heather's books are listed uh, in, in the show notes uh, section of our podcast. Do, do review us and do, do rate us on different social media as well as podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Um, once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back another Monday. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.